for the five of you who ask, are we going to delve into what did God really say part two today? The answer is yes, that is the plan. If you miss part one, it's okay. It's on video, uh, March 26th. Now, the thumbnail is the Pastor Dabin, because, you know, he attracts more. But it's me. You have to get in there. But you can watch. There's 10 things that ask, did God really say this? And you can yes or no and then listen. And so today we're going to part two. So if you will, stand with me as we look together at God's Word at Genesis chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 1 through 5. We're going to jump to Genesis 2, but it'll be free. This is the Word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from fruit from the trees in the, in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And then chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. This is the commandment God had given Adam and Eve. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. You can be seated The serpent is using God's command from Genesis 2 to deceive Eve into disobeying God. Notice it tells us that it was the serpent that spoke to Eve. Most of us in telling the story would have said, Satan said to Eve, You might even say the Bible says Satan tricked Eve into eating the apple. Is that harmless? Well, Satan is called a serpent in the New Testament. In Revelation, both in chapter 12, verse 9 and 20, verse 2, it tells us that the nature of Satan is to be a deceiver. He's the author of destruction. And we all know that an apple is a fruit. But the scripture plainly says serpent and fruit. The point of the message today, the key thing, is we need to be careful that we don't rewrite God's word for our own benefit. That we don't say to others, the Bible says, unless the Bible says it. Adam and Eve's eyes were opened, but in a way that brought death and destruction into the world. So the title is from the serpent who said, did God really say? Now, I'm just going to mention again that I own a three-legged stool. It's for backpacking and disc golf. And you can watch the video to get all of the good stuff, but just want to mention that the three legs of this stool are like three legs of God's Word. It's, it's foundational. And if you take any one of those legs away, the stool doesn't work. But let's look quickly at the three legs of God's Word. The first word is inspiration. We consider the beginning of the Bible, what sets the Bible apart from being just a really good book, is the fact that the Bible is inspired. The meaning that the text was breathed into man, breathed into the author by God's Spirit. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, literally means God breathed, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, 
thoroughly equipped for every good work. Leg number two is infallibility. Infallibility speaks to the authority and the enduring nature of the Bible. To be infallible means that something is incapable of failing, incapable of making mistakes, and incapable of being wrong. Therefore, God's Word is permanently binding and cannot be broken. Leg one, inspiration. Leg two, infallibility. Leg three, inerrancy. Inerrancy simply means that the Bible is without error. Gruden, in his textbook, Systematic Theology, it's a big book. He says about inerrancy, it is the belief in the total truthfulness and reliability of God's words. The world is attacking God's word. As followers of Christ, we must read, understand, live out God's word. The Bible will be misquoted. It's terrible when it's misquoted by believers. False teachers are going to twist and distort the truth. There is a need for followers of Christ to read, to digest, to live out God's Word. We deal with that in our society. So we're going to look at 10 words or phrases. And if you haven't, we're going to walk through them. You just circle why for yes or in for no, and you can question mark. But here we go. Number one, cleanliness is next to godliness. Yes, no. Number two, anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord is to be put to death. Number three, seven deadly sins. Number four, money is the root of all evil. Number five, pride comes before the fall. Number six, eat, drink, and be merry. Number seven, they grabbed him and he ran away naked. Hold on, middle school. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Number nine, the lion will lay down by the lamb. And number 10, Repeat the sinner's prayer and invite Jesus into your heart. Did you get them? Happy? Number one, cleanliness is next to godliness. No, it's not in God's Word. If you miss the first one, take heart. There's nine more. You're going to do better. The phrase cleanliness is next to godliness does not appear in the Bible. There is an archaic proverb expression that was found in Babylonian and Hebrew religious writings. Uh, it made a debut into the English language in a modified form. It's found in the writings of the philosopher and science, scientist Sir Francis Bacon. I don't think he's related to Kevin. Bacon, footloose, that guy. In his book, The Advancement of Learning, in 1605, he wrote, cleanness of body was ever deemed to proceed from a due reverence to God. So, similar. They talked that way back then. So, need to know. Almost 200 years later, in 1791, John Wesley made a reference to that expression in one of his sermons, and it's kind of in the form we use today. Wesley wrote, slovenliness, didn't know it was a word, slovenliness is no part of religion. Cleanliness is indeed next to godliness. There you have it. At some point, it became, well, you know, the Bible says cleanliness is next to godliness. I know your mother said it when you were a teenager. Mine, mine did. We should be both clean and godly. If you're one of those that has said to me, well, you look, you look nice today. You clean up well. You know I'm going to say, thanks, I took a shower. 
laughed politely every time. I do a fair amount of backpacking and paddling trips, and sometimes I go a week or more with no shower. I know. I try to make sure when I get home that Patty is still at the school teaching. Because I know that when I get home, A, she'll be glad to see me. Who wouldn't, right? And I know that she's going to listen to my riveting accounts of my outdoor wildly adventures. But first, she's going to make that face. And she's going to say, you need to take a shower. And then when I'm going to the bathroom, she'll say, and let's burn those clothes. <laughs> what I'm telling you is I know what it means to stinketh. King James. In Genesis, there is a beautiful creation story of a loving God creating our world. At some point, it said in the cool of the day, he would visit Adam and Eve. And then there was the day that he said, you really need to take a shower. It, it's not in there. But I'm just thinking it would have been good advice. If we investigate the Old Testament, even though God didn't say you need to take a shower, he gave excellent advice on personal hygiene, on cleanliness. And it may be a shocker, but the priest and the rabbis took it and just went off with it. There was clean and unclean food, clean and unclean people. If you were a leper, you would dress in tattered clothes, you have crazy hair, They'd make you wear a COVID mask. It wasn't the law. It was a good idea. You had to shout, unclean, stay away. And, you know, you would say, no problem. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this. I'm an outdoorsy. And I know that if you're cooking on a hardwood fire, not pine, the good stuff, oak, hickory, and you have a real skillet, not aluminum or Aluminium, if you're watching across the pond. If you have a real skillet and you've cooked some bacon, some pork, and there's, you know, the fat left over. If you take some ash and mix that together, you've made some soap. La soap. God figured that out. Now, I learned that from a YouTube video. But I could have just read the Old Testament where God gave instructions on how to make soap. It's in there. He tells us you shouldn't touch dead things. They didn't know virus, bacteria. He just said if it's dead, just stay away from it. And then he said you should take a break from eating yeast. Just knock off a few days. In fact, take a break from eating. Fast. Fasting is taking a break from eating. Wash your hands. Wash your feet. Wash your clothes, shave. God said all of those things to his people. He taught them about cleansing their nasty body. Because he had to teach them that he was going to cleanse their nasty sin. There are over a hundred verses in Leviticus alone that will teach you how to get rid of mold and mildew. They didn't go to Walmart and get the spray bottle. God taught them. And then listen just to some of what the scripture says. We'll start with Psalm 51 7. Cleanse me with hyssop. I will be clean. Wash me. I'll be whiter than snow. Psalm 51 10. Create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Isaiah 1 16. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Ezekiel 36, 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities, from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It's really cool when I realize the depth that God went 
educate us through his law, realizing that his laws are boundaries to teach us how, where we should live. It would be much better if we would just read his word and put his word into practice. Number one, it's a no. Number two, anyone who blasphemes, the name of the Lord is to be put to death. I'd say yes. It says you're to take him, stone him, and that everybody in the group should help kill them. Pleasant thought this morning. Is it harsh? Yeah, but it's what it says. Let's, let's think about us for a second. We use the dictionary to define words. So I went to the Webster Merriam online, couldn't find a hard copy, dictionary, and looked up blaspheme. And it said this, the act of insulting or showing contempt or lack of reverence for God. That's a lot. Number two, the act of claiming the attributes of a deity, meaning God. Included for free, John Bright, in 1889, said it's blasphemy when a mere man suggests that he is divine. This can only be viewed as blasphemy. So perhaps you think this verse about stoning those who blaspheme is too harsh. Let's look at some of the words that are put together to make the word blaspheme. At least five English words or five Old Testament words come into the English word blaspheme. It's like a, a funnel. They took four or five and said, when it says this, we'll call it blaspheme. And listen to some of the words, curse, revile, despise. Anytime those are used with God as the subject, it's blasphemy. And there's not a special verb reserved for cursing or insults directed at God. However, to curse or insult God is a grave sin. I think it might just be me that cursing and insulting should be considered, considered blasphemy and should be good for, at the very least, a punch in the face. If you're not going to stone, at least, no, we're not going to talk like that. Blasphemy can be done by both word and deed. There's little distinction between the sinner who deliberately abuses the name of the Lord and the one who deliberately breaks his commandment. So for both speaking and doing, you're blaspheming. The death penalty is prescribed and you are to be stoned to death. I think what we can take away from this, the freebie, is God isn't kidding about blasphemy. Serious. Because God is worthy of our respect. He's worthy of our reverence. He's worthy of our righteousness, even when our righteousness isn't very righteous. Filthy rags. God is telling us we shouldn't drag his holy name into the mud with us. He's above it. Killing someone is extreme. Having a whole group kill someone is more extreme. But I bet it burns a memory in your brain to help you filter blasphemy, blasphemous words. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus, he healed a blind man who also couldn't speak. The people were amazed. They began to ask each other, is he, is he the one? Could he be the son of David? Well, the Pharisees heard it. They didn't like it. So they said, you know, the reason he can do that is he is a devil. And that's why he can devil speak. Jesus realized they were mental. And he said to them, wait a minute. You also drive out demons. Are you devil speakers? Jesus didn't ask them some questions. He said, you don't go into a strong man's house the devil, unless you tie up the strong man, the devil, he could. They couldn't. 
So he says in verse 30 of chapter 12 of Matthew, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. He's not talking about Waffle House and hash browns. Verse 31, so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by his fruit. Then he looks at the religious and said, you brood of vipers. Subtle? He doesn't care. How can you, who are evil, say anything good? Are you ready for this? He says, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. I learned it this way. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What it's saying is what's on the inside will come out of the outside. This morning, going through this in the shower. And when I got to this point, I, I remembered I'm probably more embarrassed about the things that I've said than the things that I've done. Our mouth proves what's in our heart. Verse 35 says, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the things stored up in him. And I tell you, everyone will give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken for. By your words, you will be acquitted, and by your words, you will be condemned. Number two, anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord will be put to death. Yes, it's a yes, it, it's there. Number three, seven deadly sins. You're not even looking at your paper. It's not in the Bible. The list of seven deadly sins started out as eight, and they cut one. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Well, Lord, if you'll just cut this one, I'll be okay. It was eight, cut to seven, and they include wrath, greed, sloth, pride, lust, envy, and gluttony. It's a list. The first evidence of the list is from a monk in the fourth century. Then Pope Gregory I, never knew him, in the year 590, altered it slightly. And then Dante, in his divine comedy, I didn't think it was funny. He put it in there. And then we know that seven deadly sins has become Catholic theology. And while each of those sins may be sinful, there's not a passage that says seven deadly sins. If we look, though, there's probably ample to argue for each one being sinful. I'm just saying there's not seven deadly sins in there. You can be mad. It's okay. There aren't seven sins that are deadly because all sin is deadly. Just need one. For the wage of our sin is death. Perhaps this idea, and this is where I would have gotten it wrong, because I remember reading as a child Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, because I liked how it started out. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. And I made a note, don't do these if God hates them. Maybe he'll just dislike. I was a kid. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. If you're one of those people that need a list, a check off, let me remind you, you've got the Ten Commandments. They're right there. You probably memorized them. And the seven detestable, we looked at those. And if you add the others, wrath, greed, sloth, pride, lust, envy, gluttony, you got 24. 
to stay away from. If you just had that 24, you're not going to make it, is what I'm saying. Because you're a sinner. And every day, you should be thankful for grace. And for forgiveness. And for Jesus' sacrificial death. And for him coming back to life. Seven deadly sins, not in the Bible. Number four, money is the root of all evil. Not in the Bible. I know your grandma said it a lot. But it, it's not there. Well, maybe. If you add some words. But we're going to go with no. I'm pretty confident that nobody was fooled by this one. Because you know it's not really in there. But I kind of put it in there because as pastors, we're accused of always asking for money. I don't ever get to ask for money. So I came up with this. If you want to prove that you don't love money, you know, the Bible says it's the root of all evil, that you should give it away. We're paying off some debt. We'll take it. Tell Pastor Dabin, I threw that in. First Timothy 6.10 says, it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. It's the love of money that causes the problem, not the money itself. Money doesn't have a moral value in and of itself. It's what we do with it that makes the action good or neutral or bad. We all know people who have wandered from the faith because of their love for money. They got successful. They wanted to love God, but now gold is their God and Greed is their creed. Do you know that over 2,000 verses in the Bible address the subject of money or possessions or greed? While we all need money at some level, they tell me it's nice to have. I'm at that age of deciding, when should I retire? Did we save enough? How expensive are grandchildren? Somebody will tell us, but we don't know. I want to be a good steward. I want to be wise in my wealth. Money is like a shovel. A shovel is a useful tool. You can take a shovel and dig a hole and plant a tomato or a tree. You can take a shovel and hit the neighbor's cat that keeps coming into your yard while you're trying to plant a tomato or a tree. Now, I'm not saying that's the right thing to do. I'm telling you good, evil, neutral. I use a slingshot personally. It's not the shovel in and of itself that is good or bad. It's when it's just sitting in the corner of the garage, it's just a shovel. Money is the same way. In and of itself, not bad, but we use it, good, bad, or neutral. Tim, 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world. And we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Here's you a free gift. Maybe tomorrow, call your financial planner. Hello, how you doing? I've got a new plan. I'm going to be content with godliness. It's the best financial plan. So money's not the root of all evil. But when you love it, when it takes the place of having God provide for you and causes you not to be thankful for what God has given you, that's when it becomes evil. God didn't say money is the root of all evil, but his word does teach us that making it first, the boss, your Lord, in your life is 
evil. Number five, pride comes before the fall. Not, not really, and almost. Proverbs 16, 18 says this, pride goes before disaster and a haughty spirit before a fall. In my simple world, if I fall, it is a disaster. But pride before the fall, even though we've all said it, even though we probably said, you know, the Bible says pride comes before a fall. Not really. You could quote a Beatles song. The song is called, I'm a Loser. And somewhere around verse 4, it says pride comes before a fall. It's in there, it's not in Scripture. And there's some different kind of pride. There's a difference between the pride that God hates, we find in Proverbs 8.13, and the kind of pride we feel about doing a job well, Galatians 6.4, or the pride we have in the accomplishment of our loved ones, 2 Corinthians 7.4. That kind of pride that is born from self-righteousness or from conceit is sin, and God hates it. Because it's a hindrance to us seeking him. Psalm 10, 4 explains that the proud are consumed with themselves and that their thoughts are far from God. It says, in his pride, the wicked one does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. That's the kind of haughty pride. That's the opposite from the spirit of humility that God wants us to have. Matthew 5, 3 says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Poor in spirit are those people who have recognized their own utter spiritual bankruptcy. There is nothing I can do on my own. Their inability to come to God apart from God's divine grace. The proud, on the other hand, are so blinded by their pride, they think they don't need God. Or even worse, they expect God just to Accept them because they deserve acceptance. Throughout Scripture, we're told about the consequences of pride. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before fall. Better to be lowly in spirit and among the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. Satan was cast out of heaven because of his pride, Isaiah 14. He had the selfish audacity to attempt to replace God. He felt like he deserved to be the divine ruler of the universe. But he'll be cast into hell in the final judgment. So why is pride so sinful? Pride is giving yourself credit for something that God has done. Look at me. Pride is taking the glory that belongs to God and keeping it for ourselves. Pride is self-worship. We were in Japan on a mission trip several years ago. We were in Tokyo at the Money District. Our missionary was a friend and he was showing me all of the buildings. And he said, this right here is why only less than half of 1% of Japanese people will follow Christ. Because they come here and say, look what we have done. We do not need God. We do not need anyone. And I looked at that and thought, that's the same way we are. We think we've done stuff. And so pride comes before the fall. It's not exactly like that in Scripture, but it's probably true. Just stop misquoting it, please. Number six, eat, drink, and be merry. M-E-R-R-Y, not M-A-R-Y. Eat, drink, and be merry. Yes, it's in the Bible. And shocker, Jesus said it. But it's not what you think. The phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, or eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, has been around for a long time. There are several passages, Ecclesiastes 8, 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 32, Isaiah 22. It puts them together in different variations. But every time the underlying principle is it's, opposite of Bible teaching. It's what we're not supposed to do. In Luke 12, Jesus tells the story. He's in the temple. It's a parable. He's in the temple, and he says that two family members 
were arguing. Imagine that. Somebody had passed, and they were arguing about the inheritance. And they're trying to get Jesus involved. And Jesus told them, you need to be careful here. Because this could mess up your family. If you've had someone pass, you know it can be ugly. Then Jesus shares with them this parable about a rich fool, a very successful man who has more crops and more stuff than he could ever even use. So he decides what I need to do is tear everything down and build bigger barns so I can put in more stuff. He's saying, you've got enough stuff to last you maybe forever. It's time to eat, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. He was proud. He was self-sufficient. But he was also short-sighted because Jesus said that very night, he passed. Graveyard, dead. Made these big plans. Got the future taken care of. But he didn't take care of that day. Eat, drink, and be merry is not an invitation to party. It's a warning. Number seven, they grabbed him and he ran away naked. It's in the Bible. I know, naked people. It's close to the end of Jesus' death, the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus had been praying. The disciples were napping. Judas was plotting. And in Mark 14, 51, 52, it says, A young man, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment. Uh, he ran out of his clothes. In verse 43 of chapter 14, Jesus looks at the disciples and says, Arise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. It was Judas and the people that came to get Jesus. And Judas approached Jesus with those who came to arrest him. And he had already told them. Judas, had, you know, he laid out the plan. He said, now, when we get over there, I'm going to kiss him on the cheek. We think that's weird. But it fist bump, high five, COVID elbow rub. It was that, I'm going to identify him for you. So this armed band of men, they were sent from the chief priests, the Pharisees, the elders. They're going to arrest Jesus, take him away. So Judas kisses Jesus. The men go to grab him. Peter grabs a sword, whacks the guy's ear off. Jesus puts it back on. A great story. And Jesus says, why? Why are you here? Why here? I have not been hiding. I've been in the temple. You could have done this at church. Verse 50 says, then everyone deserted him and fled. The disciples, scared, Boop, gone. Except Mark, who's writing, Mark goes all Ray Stevens on us. And he tells us in verse 51 that a young man, and some people think it was Mark, wearing only a smile, probably a frown, and a linen garment, which was a sheet-like thing, decided to follow Jesus and the crowd, going against the flow. But somebody reached out, he wiggled, and boom. Oh, yes, they called him the young man who ran away naked. Fortunately, there was no one named Ethel nearby. Yes, there was a streaker in the Bible. Number nine, number eight. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Yes, this is a verse from the Bible. No, it probably does not mean what you think it means. Sometimes when you pick a life verse, and I know some of you, it might be good to look at the whole thing. I realize that it doesn't fit on a keychain or a t-shirt, but you should look at the whole chapter, maybe even the previous chapter, for some historical context, Jeremiah spoke these words to the Jews. They 
had been under the domination of Egyptian and Babylonian empires. They were eventually taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. We can only imagine what this would be like to live under the control, the domination of your enemies, and then be forced by those enemies to leave your homeland and settle in a foreign country. And if we were to go backward a little more, Hananiah, a false prophet, had just said, hey, in two years, you're going home. And people said, yay, ready to go home, going home. But Jeremiah, not a bullfrog, tells the people, you're going to live in Babylon for the next 70 years. They said, boo. He tells them, while you're here, you should settle down, build a house. Go ahead and get married and have children. And while you're here, pray for peace and prosperity of the city in which you're now living. Boo. Bring back Hananiah. When you get to verse 29, 11, you know it. You find people, God's chosen people, in the midst of hardship and suffering. They've just gotten devastating news. I tried to do some research on how long did they live in captivity. It's not like today. You know, we computer spreadsheet. You can find stuff. But it's a little harder. But let's just say, we know some Bible people lived into the hundreds, but let's just say that they lived to 85 or 90. That's a long time. If they were hearing, you're going to be here for 70 more years, a bunch of them, maybe most of them, they weren't going to get out of captivity. They were going to still be there. When they're doing the math, I'm 40, and I'm probably not going to see 110. You can imagine why they said boo. They didn't like it. They're in the midst of hardship. They're in the midst of suffering. They're, they desire an immediate rescue. Get us out now. They liked what Hananiah said. But God's response was not to provide immediate escape from a difficult situation. So sometimes we like to use, we're in traffic. Somebody cuts us off. But you don't know the plans God has for me to prosper me. You shouldn't be cutting me off. We want to take this for the now. And it was given for the future. God promises that he has a plan to prosper them in the midst of their current situation. If you want to get excited about something, God has a plan. And it just may not be what you think it is. It may not be to get out and to go home. It may be to blossom where he's placed you. It's not a pass from getting a speeding ticket or an A on a test you didn't study for. It's not a promise to immediately rescue us from hardships or suffering. But it's a promise that God has a plan for our lives regardless of the current situation. And that he will work through it and prosper us. And give us a hope in the future. If you went a little further, maybe to verses 12 and 13, maybe Jeremiah 29, 11 on the front, and 12 and 13 on the back, it says, call on me, come and pray to me. I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Now that's a verse. Pray. I know the plans I have for you, declare the Lord. It's a yes, maybe a no, I don't know. Number nine, the lion will lay down with the lamb. It's not in scripture, I know, I know. It's a very common misquote of scripture. The scripture is probably Isaiah eleven six. then the wolf shall be a guest of the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the young lion shall browse together. And a little child will 
guide them. It's, it's probably just misquoted and confused. Isaiah is talking about Jesus, who is called both the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God. They say the picture is worth a thousand words. So I have, this is from my office. It's a lion and a lamb. Somebody gave it to me because, you know, the Bible says that the lion will lay down with the lamb. No. What probably happens is the lion has a snack and lays down. I don't, I don't know. I'm sorry. Should have done it. Number 10. Repeat the sinner's prayer and invite Jesus into your heart. Neither one of these phrases are in the Bible. You probably heard someone asking a group of people to bow your head and close your eyes and repeat this prayer after me. I probably said it myself, to be honest. And then we throw out a prayer that people say. And then if you prayed this prayer for the first time and you want to invite Jesus into your heart, raise your hand and we get a card and I'm usually okay with that. If somebody's going to sit down with that person later, say, tell me what you did. Tell me what happened. So that you know that it was a real something. You won't find sinners prayer in the Bible, but you should find sinners praying because that's a, definitely a good thing. The sinner's prayer typically refers to a non-Christian's initial prayer of repentance, prayer of faith at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Typically, it's about sharing the truth about Jesus. person wants, they don't know how to pray. So if it's someone and they, they have no clue. You say prayer, they don't even know what that is. I get that. But it's kind of a model prayer. It's not scripture. And I bring it up because there are some things that we need to be careful of. No matter how many times you've sat through personal witnessing training, and you should. I, I'm a fan of that, you will never win someone to Christ. It's not your job. Your job is to be obedient and share good news. And the Holy Spirit is the one that does the winning. So we should celebrate. Guess what the Holy Spirit did today? Twelve people were saved. Not usually how we present it. I won seven people to the Lord today. That's opposite is true. I've shared with 20 people, and none of them have ever prayed. Well, it's not your responsibility. For them to say no is on them. They said no. Your responsibility is everywhere you go to talk about Jesus, to share how Jesus changed your life, and to say, you know, he would like to change your life. How, well, tell me how. Well, you can do it. And if you say prayer, and they say, I don't know. Well, I usually say, let me tell you, this is a prayer that I prayed when I was a kid and it communicates this to God but we sometimes we just want to have a something uh, we need a script we need a something and so we say I've said we've broken it down to it's as simple as ABC admit believe confess I'm not saying it's bad because you do need to do those things but then I'm sitting there thinking well can we stop at that? Because there is a D. Then you need to be discipled. Well, then there's an E. You should evangelize others. There's an F. We got to have fellowship. And we'll float away. Wait, we need a G. We got to grow in God's work. Well, then we need an H. We need to help others. And an I, which today means I'm going to stop here because I would just keep going. Because I like to have a something. And I'm not saying don't have a something. I'm saying realize when you have a something, the Holy Spirit, it's his job. So let him do his job. And there we go. I love Romans 10, 9 and 10. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes and is justified and with the mouth confesses and is saved. And if you just jump a verse or two down, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord 
will be saved. So, inasmuch as the term sinner's prayer refers to the prayer of repentant, repentant faith, convicted sinner, it's a biblical concept. There's just no sinner's prayer in Scripture. Here's what I don't want to happen is we get a church full of people who came to, we'll say, kids camp or Bible school or Wednesday night, and we laid it out there, what it means to be saved. And we've said, if you think you want to be saved, if you'll close your eyes and bow your head and repeat this after me. And they do. And then probably baptized. And then 20 years later, they're in college. They don't, there is no fruit in their life. You don't see Jesus. You don't smell Jesus. You're thinking, how could you have been changed if you weren't changed? I just want us to be careful. A, I want you to know, if you're here today, you need to know that you know that you know that it was, it was a real deal. I'm not trying to trick you. I don't need numbers. I'm just saying that if all you did was repeat somebody's prayer and you didn't really mean it and you didn't really change, there's a problem. And it's fixable. When we were in Alaska, we didn't do the sinner's prayer, but we did this every day. If we're in a red shirt, blue shirt, green shirt, whatever the shirt, if you want to ask about what it's like to be, come see us. We'll be glad to tell you. And I just want, as we leave this number 10, to say we need to be careful about God's Word. We need to know it, understand it, quote, and just quit saying God's Word says unless God's Word says. Let me pray for you. Father God, I thank you for today. Father, I ask in Jesus' name that the power of your Holy Spirit will search our heart. Or all of us right now, me, every person in here. Let us remember our repentance and our growth and the way that we're different. Father, help us to know your word and to share your word and to spread your word completely. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.